I'm Chip Granditz. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, February 12, 2019. We spend some time at the intersection of art, engineering, and science. We'll hear about the world premiere of a production titled Holocene's Little Boxes next week at the Fisk Planetarium in Boulder. Today, we'll get a glimpse of how cutting-edge visual artists team up with world-class scientists using the latest technology to complement a rational understanding of climate change with visceral images to inspire empathy with the hope to engender action and change. Today in the studio, we speak with Marta Kern, director of EcoArts Connection, Shilpi Gupta of the Center for of, with Series Software Engineer of Science on a Sphere, and Dr. Elizabeth Weatherhead, a climate scientist and expert in climate forecasting and modeling. How high is the water, Mama? Two feet high and rising. How high is the water, Papa? She said it's two feet high and rising. But we can make it to the road in a homemade boat Cause that's the only thing we got left that'll float It's already over all the wheat and oats Two feet high and rising Little Boxes is uh, a collaboration of EcoArts Connection and Science on a Sphere. Contributors include visual artists, technical innovators, engineers, scientific advisors, and even children from the local community. We have three of those contributors with us in the studio today. Marta Kern, Shilpi Gupta, and Dr. Elizabeth Weatherhead. I'd like to welcome you all to How on Earth. Uh, but with three of you here in the studio and with such diverse backgrounds, in order to help the listeners at home keep track, uh, I'm going to do the introductions one at a time as I bring each of you into the conversation. So that'll allow us to dive in just a little bit sooner. So let me start with uh, Marta Kern. She is the founding director of Eco Arts Connections, an organization which brings the arts together with science, social justice, and indigenous ways of knowing to inspire people of all ages to live more sustainably. Prior to Eco Arts Connection, Kern was the founding director of the Colorado Dance Festival, where she stayed on for a 14-year tenure. Holocene's Little Boxes is a great example of the kind of production which Eco Arts Connections works to make possible. Marta, again, welcome to the show, and let's start by diving right in. If listeners out there can find themselves at the premiere at Fisk Planetarium next Wednesday, what are they in for? What will be happening there? What will be their experience? Well, we're hoping it will be as exciting for them as it has been for us putting this whole production together. It really brings the power of, of science and the cognitive realm, which is basically intellect, mind, uh, analysis, research, facts, that's normally communicated through numbers, graphs, charts, and sometimes text, along with the affective power of the arts, which is the, the realm of the heart, feelings, values, attitudes, and beliefs, with a language that, it, that typically includes metaphors, images, and stories. Storytelling, And by bringing these two realms together, the cognitive affective uh, realms, it makes everything more effective in terms of communicating science and, um, and climate change. And But what, what they'll actually see when they come in is there's this 
this amazing gizmo. <laughs> it's not a gizmo, but it's this <laughs> thing called Science on a Sphere that Shilpi's going to talk about um, in just a minute. But it's, it's basically a six-foot-in-diameter globe that's in 160-plus um, science and natural history centers, um, technology centers all around the world. Um, and they will, and so the audiences, when they come in, they will see this the premiere of this short film, five-minute film, that's going to be on Science on a Sphere. And then we'll progress into the the main auditorium of Fisk Planetarium, and we'll be having a panel discussion, which sounds hideously boring, but this is actually not. It's going to be, thr- I think, really thrilling, um, and that's going to be in the dome, and we'll be probably showing um, some other footage as well in there. And so I understand at this panel discussion, uh, some of the artists that are responsible for uh, Holocene's, uh, its progenitor, and this particular production, they include... Uh, uh, Lars, John, and Pablo Molino. Tell us a little bit about uh, those artists and uh, the vision that they had to, to come up with Holocenes and and how you found out about this and how you came to make this production. The original Holocenes was a live performance um, that was performed in different parts of the world, and it it was inspired by a photograph that, that Lars saw that was about the flooding, uh, extensive flooding in 2010 in Pakistan, plus Hurricane Katrina, plus just the whole story of water in the in the 21st century um, that's evolving. And, and Lars wanted to create some kind of visceral experience of what does storm surge and sea level rise really mean. And so he made, with engineers and scientists, these incredible human-sized aquariums that aquaria, <laughs> where people would would um, and collected gestures from people all around the world, like reading newspapers, drinking coffee, eating rice out of a bowl with chopsticks, different kinds of playing the guitar that that a performer would perform in this aquarium as water slowly rose, and they kept trying to perform these gestures, trying to perform them, and then at a certain point, it, the water would fall, and that sounds like just very simple and mundane and stuff like that, but it creates this unbelievably visceral experience of what sea and beautiful exquisitely beautiful experience of of sea level rise and so these aquariums were in different places and they're set outside they sometimes they would go for 24 hours you know changing the performers one at a time i think one of the most spectacular ones was recently as kind of the jewel in the crown of the world science festival in the middle of times square um and people would see from a distance like what is that and um and then slowly slowly they would be able to see really what it was and, and and were deeply deeply affected by it so i saw this i didn't see the performance but i saw a presentation about it in a huge booking conference in in new york city and i said i want this <laughs> i want this to come to boulder and of course it only cost one hundred forty thousand dollars to bring the live performance so i thought okay tucked that away and then meanwhile my meanwhile i um came into contact with shilpi gupta who had this brilliant idea of of um having artists make work in collaboration with scientists for Science on a Sphere. Well, uh, Marta, that's a perfect segue. I I now want to uh, uh, bring our second guest into the conversation. Uh, Shilpi Gupta is a senior software engineer at the Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Sciences who works on Science on a Sphere, the amazing gizmo to which you (laughs) referred, uh, right here in Boulder, Colorado. She develops interactive graphical features, applications, and mobile apps. Uh, Shilpi has a background Uh, Not just in computer science, where she has a Bachelor of Science and Master of Science, but also as an artist with a Bachelor of Arts in Art Studio, all from the University of Kentucky. Her career path puts her at the intersection of science and art, such as this project. Uh, Shilpi Gupta, welcome to How on Earth. Uh, Please start by telling us a little more about this amazing gizmo 
to which Marta referred, uh, Science on a Sphere, and how you came to work on it. Sure. Thanks for having us here. Um, so Science on a Sphere is a large display system that uses one computer and four video projectors to project Earth system science and other planetary data onto a six-foot diameter sphere that's suspended from the middle of a room. So basically, if you imagine walking into a big room, you see this big floating Earth in front of you, kind of like an animated globe. And Science on a Sphere, which we'll call SOS for short, was invented by researchers at NOAA as an educational tool in order to help people understand Earth system science um, in a way that's really intuitive and captivating for people of all ages. So... Um, just to give you a little bit of yeah, a... Give us an idea of some of the, like, the original content developed for it. Yeah, so Science on a Sphere has over 500 different kinds of data sets, ranging from, and by data sets I mean visualizations, or essentially images or videos that are wrapped around the sphere. And um, we can show things like atmospheric storms, oceanic temperatures, real-time weather, snow and ice, extents, vegetation. Some of our more um, social data sets include airtime traffic around the world in one day, as well as nighttime lights. So we've got a big, big variety of um, visualizations. And one of my personal favorite is the Japanese um, earthquake and tsunami data set. So if you can imagine just having a global map wrapped around the sphere, and you see all of these little circles pulsating around the globe, and some of them are small, and they represent all of the earthquakes going on around the world, um, many of them imperceptible to us. And all of a sudden, during the earthquake of Japan in 2011, which was incredibly devastating, um, you see this big, the circle gets bigger and bigger. Um, I think it was a magnitude of nine. And then you see these waves propagate all across the globe. And you can really get a visceral sense of how the waves are bouncing off all of the other countries. And the cool thing is being able to see an actual model of the Earth. Um, you you can sense our interconnectedness. So on a flat map, as the waves would go past the 180 degree mark, you would then go off to the other side, whereas on Science on a Sphere, it's just a seamless transition. And so that's interesting, because when I think of uh, a traditional movie, uh, you know, there's the idea of a window into the scene that the director or the cinematographer is thinking of. And so you, you don't get to see from the sides or from the back. Um, but now I hearken back maybe to, with analogy to what I would think of as theater in the round, you know. So now with Science on a Sphere, uh, there are images showing in every direction and there is no behind the scenes or to the mm -hmm. side of the scenes. Um, so tell us a little bit about maybe how the projector technology works because sure. a conventional movie or even a planetarium at Fisk Planetarium that, that projects to the inside of a dome that all more or less can come from one point. But now to, to get the images seamlessly around a sphere, there would have to be projections from, from different points. Yes, so basically we have four projectors that are spaced 90 degrees from each other around the sphere. And um, each between each projector, there is an area of overlap um, because the, the projectors kind of crosstalk. So um, the main technology behind Science on a Sphere is to find a way to photometrically and geometrically align the content in between those overlap regions so that we can create one seamless image. So the way we do that is, um, first, just to give you a little background on our content format, we use the equatorial cylindrical equidistant map projection, which is basically a two-by-one rectangular format. So you can imagine a two-by-one rectangular image 
We take that image, we divide it into four parts. Each projector gets one of those parts. And any content that gets projected in those overlap regions, they have to be aligned geometrically, they have to be stitched together, and we apply a blending algorithm to those areas. And so when content is produced, uh, so I imagine a lot of times this can be sort of computer generated and digitally generated, but I assume that in this new usage that uh, that uh, Holocene is going to have, uh, you start with, with filmed images. There, are there special, uh, is there a special cinematography of the sphere that, that artists have to learn about in order to provide content for you? Do they need special cameras or anything like that? Um, they don't necessarily need special cameras, but they do need to think about what does it mean to create content for a spherical canvas? There's many considerations. So you might have an audience in the round and you have to consider storytelling or how you're pre presenting information on something that's round and that's 360. You have to think about proportions on objects, proportions of objects on a sphere are different compared to um, something you would see on a flat screen or warping at the north and the south poles. You have to take things like that into consideration. Yeah, I mean, certainly the advantage uh, for actually conveying spherical information is that you don't have the distortion of projections. I think many people that know about cartography and maps notice that the classic map that we all see in, in elementary school makes Greenland look huge and you would think Africa is not so big. Uh, so you don't get any of those distortions. Um, but now you're working the other way around. You're starting with images that people naturally think and expect to be in a plane. I think a lot of times when we visualize what, what our own visual field is, we mm -hmm. tend to think in a plane. Uh, in reality, we see in 3D and in depth mm -hmm. like that. Um, so did you work with this? It was it What was it, Night Labs production? Night you, Light Labs. Night Light Labs. Mm -hmm. Did you work with a cinematographer or a production expert there to help train them and help them understand? So basically what we did, we Science on a Sphere has a set of content creation guidelines that are fairly basic, but they kind of address all aspects of what options are available to the system, as well as what kind of image format do you need, what kind of audio format and um, video format. And then we also contacted a film producer who's made some really high production uh, films for Science on a Sphere. And he was gracious enough to give a two-hour web uh, seminar to Nightlight Labs, Lars and Pablo. And um, after that, they pretty much took it on their own. They're an incredibly talented and tech-savvy company. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to How on Earth on KGNU. We're talking about Holocene's Little Boxes, an avant-garde uh, artistic production that will be on, uh, have a world premiere at the Fisk Planetarium Wednesday, a week from tomorrow. Um, we have three guests in the studio, and I want to take this opportunity to welcome our third guest, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Weatherhead. Uh, Betsy Weatherhead is an expert in climate change forecast and verification and model analysis. Uh, she recently retired from the University of Colorado just last year and now works as a senior scientist and fellow at Jupiter Intelligence, a climate consulting company. In 2007, she shared the Nobel Peace Prize as a member of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change for contributions on the understanding of the Arctic climate. She works on evaluating pollutants, climate change, and ozone depletion and teaches environmental statistics. Her work on ozone recovery was featured on the cover of Science. She has worked with indigenous cultures to understand their insights in how the environment is changing. While her professional career involves working on data, lots and lots of data, 
She also has a strong interest in art as both a painter and as someone who appreciates art. Dr. Elizabeth Weatherhead, or Betsy, welcome to How on Earth. Uh, tell us how you learned of this project. Obviously, at this point in your career, you have many options and calls on your time, but what interests you about this project to become a scientific advisor for Holocene's Little Boxes? Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, Marty, Marta and Shilpi reached out to me and asked me if I was interested. What uh, really compelled me to make time in my schedule for this was they had a clear vision of what they wanted to achieve. It was not a scientific goal, but they knew what they wanted to get to and they wanted it to be scientifically responsible. So I was happy to, to lend my perspective to the entire process um, and you're right, I have to choose carefully, and I'm very proud of having chosen this project. Well, I, I guess that's, a, that's high praise for, for those that might be interested in the, not just the artistic, but the scientific aspect of it. Uh, before uh, we talk a little bit more about your involvement, let's start with um, what exactly is the business of Jupiter Intelligence, and tell us a little bit about what you do there. Ah, well, Jupiter is really filling a niche that I think the world wants right now, trying to take climate change information and make it actionable, make it understandable. Um, our customers uh, range from business owners who want to know what their real risks of flooding or fires or uh, having other kinds of catastrophes hit them, to municipalities and governments who want to start planning for the decades ahead. I now understand better than before I joined Jupiter how difficult it is to take even things like the IPCC, big assessments of climate change, and turn it into information that an individual or a city or a country can actually do something about. And as, as long as we have uh, such an eminent climate scientist mm -hmm. in the studio, I have to pause and ask you uh, a little bit about some of the latest developments in climate mm -hmm. science. Uh, those who follow science news probably are already aware of drastic changes in the forecast for melting in Antarctica. And I understand you were recently quoted in the magazine New Yorker uh, about what the, the data has shown for the year 2018. So just take another moment and, and give us your take on some of these latest uh, developments in climate science and what they pretend for the, the schedule we have to work on. Sure. The the latest data, which was just announced by jointly by NOAA and NASA last week, is that last year, 2018, was the fourth warmest year on record. And it was uh, Europe's warmest year on record. And we had a number of countries setting the absolute records for the highest temperatures they've ever uh, experienced. I think that headline is something we can all understand. But as a climate scientist, I think the more compelling story is what's happening with water. Um, some people may be aware of what went on with South Africa, where they were really looking at drastic, drastic responses to a lack of water for the citizens with the potential people having to go and fetch water. Um, that didn't happen, but they, they had to have that plan in place. We're seeing European rivers ascend and drying up. We're seeing massive droughts on the western U.S., which certainly contributed to the fires, the destructive fires we've seen. And we're seeing sea levels continue to rise, uh, causing flooding on the east coast of the U.S. as well as elsewhere around the world. So uh, water to me is the big issue. And as a climate scientist, we keep a really close eye on some of the drivers like Greenland and Antarctica. Okay, and for this next question, um, I'm going to put this out to you, uh, Betsy Weatherhead, first, but I'd like to get all of our panelists maybe to chime in if you have something to say. 
but I'll start uh, with you, Betsy. Um, so you've spent a full scientific career amassing the evidence and the data for climate change and the human contribution to it, the impact it has, and forecasting the impact it will have. But I now often wonder, you know, maybe it's just the main obstacle is not about making a more solid scientific case. You know, maybe the main obstacle is is now more about willful ignorance, denial, and the apathy of helplessness. Uh, you know, and I thought about this when I saw the quote uh, from the visual artist who developed uh, Holocene's, uh, Lars Jan. It was a quote from the press release Marta uh, gave to me. He said, at this point, the climate crisis is as much about us, the behavioral and cognitive science behind how we make decisions, think, and act in the long term, and feel empathy, as much as it is about CO2 or melting glaciers. Uh, so what do you think about that? I uh, was really struck by that, uh, that quote from our, our colleague, the artist. Um, I think that climate change has moved on from, is it real? Do you believe in it? That was a, a, a conversation that I think we all got tired of. And, and quite truthfully, having been in those conversations, behind the scenes, people would often let down their formal face and um, admit that they they didn't have a quite as extreme view as they felt compelled to give. So I think our conversation is moving on from do you believe in it, which to me is a strange phrase when it comes to science, m more on to what are we going to do. And I could see that conversation going in any of a number of directions. Whether or not we start going after the low-hanging fruit, the changes that are easiest for us to make, whether it's uh, starting to bring in economics, whether or not we expand the conversation and start talking about the impacts on human health and acidification of the oceans and really take a more comprehensive view. I could see it going in any of a number of different directions, but I positively feel we've moved on from do you believe that the earth is changing thank you uh marta kern uh yeah bring it back to you so again this idea that you know uh betsy weatherhead can bring together amazing xy plots and bar charts and scatter plots but sometimes that does not have the visceral impact uh necessary to get people to 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 make action and change Talk a little bit about how artists have a role in that. I think, you know, in the in the beginning imagery about climate change, quote-unquote, education, you know, we looked at, you know, polar bears on melting um, glaciers, glaciers yeah. and stuff like that, and people just finally realized, ooh, not a good plan. It's kind of like not here, not me, not my problem, not my responsibility. And what we're trying to do with the work here is really make it so that people feel it, and but not in a what I call SDA, sucky didactic art way, which is kind of like, you know, there's a lot of really well-intentioned stuff out there, and I don't mean to be dismissive, but it's it's really kind of hits you on the head, like you're going to go to hell if you don't recycle, and it's sort of like, that makes you basically feel bad, and I think what I love so much about this particular work is it really... It, it it just inspires you to ask questions and helps you to see your own part in this incredible situation that we're in right now and, and in, enlivens you to, to think about how can I take action in a way that is, is possible, makes sense, is, and even joyful. Thank you. And then I want to turn to uh, Shilpi Gupta. As someone like we mentioned in your introduction, you have a background both uh, in science and art. Uh, as someone who started in this science of, on a sphere technology, displaying data sets, now you're working 
with artists displaying images on a human scale. Uh, tell us about uh, your approach and your evolution as a scientist and an artist and what you'd like to do in the future. Sure. So um, I feel like science visualizations can be incredibly beautiful and powerful and compelling. However, I think for me, I've always wondered, is there a way that we can connect deeper into the data um, so that we can kind of go past an action that Marta was talking about? So um, kind of the idea for bringing an artist has to do with emotion and uh, affect. And um, I think affect is something that all of us experience. It's a it's a common human experience. So if we can find something that's common in, within humans and merge that with science, perhaps that can take us past the threshold of inaction into something that's more viable and then that ins- inspires behavior change. Thank you, Shilpi. Well, Marta, we've almost run out of time. And, and before we move on to Ellen Watts, uh, I want to remind people uh, of the details of the production. If listeners have been enticed by what they've heard here today, uh, is it possible for them to come and see the world premiere, or do they have to know people and pull strings? No, and it's at Fisk, and it's free, which is really thrilling. And the actual show starts uh, in Punto, which means it's been exactly at 7 o'clock, but there's a reception at 6.15 that... Um, so please get there as soon as possible because it's all first come first serve and we're just going to be handing out tickets and when we reach 200 it's the end <laughs> so so yeah come come then well we'll put this up on our website but for those that uh, just prefer to jot things down while they're listening is there a particular should they call Fisk Planetarium or is there an email or a phone number they should call if they go on the website um, at Fisk they can they can find all the information including you know where to park what the transit information is as well so Fisk Planetarium website will do it. All right. Well, Marta Kern, and then before that, you heard Shilpi Gupta and Dr. Betsy Weatherhead. I want to thank you all for stopping by our studio. Uh, An artistic statement on how climate change affects us at the human scale. Holocene's Little Boxes world premiere is Wednesday, February 20th at Fisk Planetarium. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced and engineered by Chip Granditz. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Johnny Cash. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303 347-9911 for How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Chip Granditz.